Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 159, recorded on March 30th, 2022. The Cloud Pod suspends its GCP hosts. Good evening, Peter and Jonathan. How are you doing? What did I do wrong? Well, technically, you're here, so you weren't no. the one suspended. Okay, good. But Ryan, Ryan, he's in the doghouse. <laughs> yeah, we we have one job, uh, you know, here at the Cloud Pod that's record weekly for our listeners. Uh, but we we have a spot in the show notes where we put in like, you know, what's your holidays that you're taking. Uh, and so, you know, that's where we typically put in like, hey, Justin's going to be on vacation. Jonathan's going to be on vacation. Uh, but there was no note that Ryan is apparently taking two weeks off to go to Ohio. So he's gone on vacation for two weeks and told us on Monday morning. So thanks, Ryan. We really appreciate you. Suspended. <laughs> yeah, and you're officially suspended for two weeks. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> with full pay. With, with full yeah, pay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> full pay. <laughs> yeah. Which is zero times zero equals zero. So yeah, there you go. All right. Well, AWS uh, and uh, Azure have stories this week. GCP only had one, uh, which is kind of a weird week. Uh, so, you know, we, we've, we're inundated with Azure stories, which is always uh, it makes for an interesting show. So, but let's start with the uh, AWS uh, this week. The cloud NGFW for AWS, which I was hoping was uh, not going to f and work, but uh, that is not what it stands for. Uh, for AWS, is a new capability apparently to support Palo Alto networking cloud next generation firewalls in the AWS Firewall Manager. Uh, you can use the Firewall Manager to centrally provision and manage your cloud next-gen firewall resources and monitor for non-compliant configurations all across multiple accounts and VPCs. Uh, the best-in-class features offered by next-generation firewall are wrapped inside a native AWS experience with no hardware hassles, no software upgrades, and a pay-as-you-go pricing. Just like a physical PAN device, the next-generation firewall can decrypt network packets, look inside, and then identify applications and signatures, protocol decoding, behavioral analysis, and heuristics giving you the ability to implement fine-grained, application-centric security management that is more effective than simpler models that are based solely on ports, protocols, and IP addresses. And, of course, you have advanced URL filtering as well uh, if you want whitelisting or those type of capabilities, which I don't really want to pay Palo Alto for that capability. i just like Amazon to give it to me. But, you know, if you really need something today, this is definitely a great way to do that. Uh, you can purchase this offering through the marketplace, uh, either publicly or via a private offer, I assume, from your Palo Alto sales rep. And you're probably going to want to get that private pricing because the listed pay-as-you-go pricing is uh, quite steep. Uh, base firewall usage is $1.63 uh, per unit, which a unit is just one usage hour per AZ. Uh, for every one gigabit of traffic secured, you're basically paying uh, $0.05. Cents. And then for threat prevention usage, you're paying $0.32. Cents. For advanced URL filtering, you're paying $0.50 cents per hour. And enhanced support uh, will cost you $0.29 cents per hour. Uh, so, yeah, not a cheap offering, but if you're really into Palo Alto and you really need this in your security protocol, you can now get it from the marketplace and get it embedded into a nice pay-as-you-go Amazon interface. I'm ready to make my uh, reinvent next year's first prediction, which will be an Amazon Basics version of that for one-tenth the cost. Well, the Amazon is waiting to see, okay, let's see how much money next, you know, Palo Alto makes. And then when they see the numbers and, you know, the fact that they're multiple digits into millions of dollars, they'll be like, yes, yes, build it ourselves. We can take all this money away from them. <laughs> well, it's going to be more complicated. It's going to be, it's going to be can we build it ourselves for, for, uh, for less than the 30% we're making off Palo Alto doing all the work for us? Right. That's like more than $7 an hour, though. $7 an hour is pretty steep. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's across multiple VPCs and accounts, though, so it's not like you have to deploy this all over the place 
So I mean, like I said, in a large organization, it's not horrendous, but but still, ouch. I mean, having written many million dollar checks to Palo Alto for physical Palo Alto devices, uh, this just feels about right for me. About <laughs> how much it costs. Comfortably numb. Comfortably numb. Just comfortably yeah. numb. Yeah. <laughs> Rather just bleed the money slowly by the hour instead of uh, writing that big ass check once once a year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now now I take that out of my capex budget, puts it on my opex budget, which you know makes the accounts unhappy with me. So there you go. Well, you know, for all you AWS Lambda fanboys, uh, you know, you've gotten really cool features over time, right? The ability to do Lambda layers, you've gotten long running uh, transactions, but, you know, they weren't really fixing a couple key use cases around uh, streaming or data ML or potentially ETL jobs where you maybe just want to spin up a Lambda function to potentially, you know, do an ETL transaction job. And, and that's typically because the performance you were getting out of an EFS attachment um, was not quick enough, and the 512 megabytes of storage they were giving you on your Lambda function was just not enough. Uh, but this week, AWS is giving you the gift of 10 gigabytes of ephemeral storage at the slash temp location. Uh, addressing large data sets by loading data from S3 FS, uh, to solve this is a large cost, but going to this method allow you to use AWS Lambda with a, a configurable size for temp uh, from anywhere from 512 megabytes to 10,240 megabytes. Uh, making it much more cost-effective. You only pay for the storage you allocate over the 512 megabytes, and it is part of your Lambda configuration. It's available in all regions uh, that Lambda is available to, and it's available for a lot of zeros, three zero nine cents for every gigabyte second. So it, in the example they had in the article and the pricing thing, it basically it was like eight cents for this use case that was uh, you know, several hundred dollars for the rest of the Lambda function. So the pretty nominal price for this additional storage, uh, but, uh, you know, it's definitely there if you need it. And if you need 10 gigs and you can do a lot more data with that, knock yourselves out. Cheap, but they're not giving it to you. They're selling it to you. It's a little interesting to calculate the math, though, because you have to, like, okay, I've done, allocated the full 10,240 megabytes, and then you subtract the 512 from that because that's still free. <laughs> and then yeah. you just, it's just the overage you have to charge, you know, so keep that in your mind for your math problems. But uh, yeah, I mean, more and more serverless uh, continues to evolve, the more serverful it seems to feel <laughs> in this kind of model. Yeah, yeah. first they gave us more CPUs and RAM, now they gave us more storage. They're going to give us servers next. <laughs> yeah. Well, we really are persistent, right? Yeah, oh, it's, it's pretty neat because I've, I've seen use cases, I've had use cases where I needed a little bit more. It's very frustrating to be brought up right against that limit and and there's no flexibility there so it's kind of it's kind of nice and I, I like that you can choose how much you're going to allocate ahead of time this is great for things like um you know pre-built machine learning models where you've already trained it somewhere else and now you just build the whole thing into a docker container or you download the model at runtime or something and uh and run it very quickly in lambda and then let it go again so cool what i think is fun when they make a big change like this is that it's not like it's not about grabbing those individuals like you who needed an extra 10 or a hundred megabytes. It's about people coming up with completely new use cases now for Lambda where 10 gig is barely enough to get the job done. <laughs> they really want 11. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be fun to see what the new use cases are. I mean, why, I am sort of intrigued that they chose 10 gigabytes as the ephemeral storage limit. And I assume it has to do with the underlying hardware at some level. But yeah, why can't they go to 20 or 30 or 40 gigs? Because you can think about bigger and bigger ML workloads. You may need a bigger data set to compare something to. Um, you know, so, you know, 10 is a, a good, you know, from 512 to 10, you know, that's a pretty good jump. 
but uh, I could see this going even further uh, ahead. You probably find that the time to download those those objects when Lambda starts up or when, when you receive a request sort of makes it very cost prohibitive. It, it would make more sense at that point just to use Fargate or your own ECS cluster or EKS cluster to, to run permanent compute. All right, AWS Proton now supports the Terraform open source product for uh, in general availability for you. The support for defining infrastructure and HashiCorp config language and provisioning via Terraform open source is now generally available for all regions where Proton is available. You can define AWS Proton templates using Terraform modules in addition to CloudFormation. Customers can use Terraform as their infrastructure definition and provisioning tool. And AWS Proton keeps modules that are used consistently up to date for you. The GA launch includes support for Bitbucket and improved messaging across the service to further clarify the status of your provisioning activities. So glad to see this one. I'm not sure why Bitbucket was the launch product versus GitHub, but you know, here we are. <laughs> I, I, I'm slightly concerned that this is going to put a pretty big hit in HashiCorp's revenue for Terraform Cloud and TFE. Would hate to see them suffer and not be able to continue to innovate. Agreed. Yeah, it still has other advantages though. TFE is this is this isn't TFE. This isn't going to manage workspaces or users or any of those things. It's, right. it's not going to not going to do that. This this is a nice solution for integrating kind of um, service catalog type deployments with a, a way to deploy them, which is in cloud formation. And a lot of people don't like CloudFormation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a step in the direction of, of eating a chunk out of Terraform Cloud, but I, I don't think it's going to be fully featured enough yeah. to do so. I mean, yeah, while you're you're publishing a Terraform module into your Proton libraries, basically, I don't see it, you know, it's only a replacement for Terraform Enterprise if you're using Proton as your only deployment method, which most companies are not. I, in fact, I don't know any companies using AWS Proton today. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I do appreciate that they're, they're trying to make this thing be a real true platform as a service play. They're really trying to give you those capabilities in any language you want to be in, in CloudFormation or Terraform. You know, having the flexibility of choice is always a plus. This just like, is the just like you can still do CloudFormation in uh, YAML or uh, JSON. So you know, you yeah. choose. It, this is the first um, HCL compatible service that Amazon have built, though I think. Well, they had uh, they had one other one they released. They released uh, some component of Count Factory. Yeah, yeah, Count Factory. Okay. It is also terraformable. Sort of an interesting acknowledgement that there are other infrastructure as code uh, products out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're Amazon, you support all of those because you're not making any money off the cloud formation. You're making money off the things people spin up. Right. All right, next up is Amazon GameSparks, uh, which I can only say is a competitor to the Google game thing. <laughs> Amazon was like, we can do that too. Uh, but this is a release and preview for Amazon GameSparks, a managed AWS service that provides game developers with features for building, running, and scaling the backend for their games without having to manage servers or low-level cloud primitives. Amazon GameSparks makes building a game backend easy for game developers with little to no cloud experience since it comes with out-of-the-box backend features that require minimal setup and are pre-integrated with Unity Game Engine. This new service, specifically designed for game developers, is developed from the ground up using AWS primitives to be secure, purpose-built for games, and tightly integrated with AWS. Uh, which, you know, I, I know game developers are very focused on gaming stuff, but it seems like making a gaming backend is something that they would all have to do as part of their college program or something, right? <laughs> like, every game has a backend system at this point. It does, but, but you know, if you're a company that, that churns out games by by the hundred, as you see on, on mobile all the time, a, a, a sort of simplifying 
the process of doing that, not having to to rewrite that every single time you do a game. Oh, I guess people could keep their own their own private libraries for things, but I mean, this is what Amazon does. This is what cloud service is all about: is mm-hmm. taking things that people do commonly and make, making it easy for people. And it's I, I, I kind of laugh at this when I read it because one of the things that one of the challenges I set for our new engineers was to build um, this type of thing, kind of like a, a a game platform where you could build an API which would create a game, manage game stages, manage game configurations and states, and then have people sort of build a tic-tac-toe or build some you know, drafts or chess or checkers, one of those other types of games on top of that. And so it, it's kind of funny to see it actually being turned into a, you know, a commercial service. The thing I found most interesting about it, though, is that it supports Unity, um, but not Sumerian out of the box. I mean, Sumerian's kind of like a Unity Lite in a way because it's only web-based. I was very surprised not to see it have Sumerian integration though. Uh, I mean, maybe it's coming, and also it maybe tells you what you need to know about how uh, how much how many customers are using Sumerian. <laughs> so I do I do you know I was just double checking here in the launch blog for this. You know, they talk about some of the features. So it's going to support both mobile backends for iOS and Android as well as PC gaming platforms. And then they talk about the, the custom select features are cloud code for adding custom logic integrated with other AWS services and extending pre-built game features, a test harness for verifying cloud code logic from within the console in seconds, auth and identity, uh, integrating with guest auth, giving an anonymous identity for access to game backend features. I hope that's not built on Cognito. Please don't be built on Cognito. Manage players. <laughs> you know it is. <laughs> I know it is. Manage player storage for an integrated data storage to store and retrieve persistent player data, which assumes off F3. Messaging uh, via you know, GameSparks over WebSocket connections. Integration with Lambda uh, to do all kinds of different things with an integration with DynamoDB. So that's a, it's actually a pretty full-featured offering you know, for what it, it plugs into natively out of the box. And this is in preview. So you can imagine they're going to get feedback and make it better from here. That, I don't know if you guys believe this or not, but that, that's it for Amazon this week. Wow. Yeah, it's a light week. Good job, Amazon. Yeah. Nice when you give us a break. Yeah. <laughs> but GCP said, well, we can beat that with only one announcement this week. <laughs> uh, and so they are giving you, though, a pretty big savings uh, after they give you a pretty big price increase a couple weeks back. Uh, you can now <laughs> save money on Google Cloud with suspend slash resume for compute instances, which is now generally available. Uh, suspending a Google Cloud Compute Engine VM will save the state of your instance to disk, allowing you to pick up where you left off when you resume it later. Uh, while an instance is in suspended state, you no longer pay for the cores or the RAM. Instead, you only pay for the storage costs of your instance memory and other uh, data that you have on the VM instance. Uh, this will also cut you down your OS licensing costs, which is super nice. And suspending an instance sends the ACPI S3 signal to the instance operating system, and this results in two advantages they could say, say compared to other cloud providers' offerings. First, they say it's better because it allows broad compatibility with a wide selection of OS images without requiring you to use a cloud-specific OS image or install daemons. Undocumented custom OS images that respond to the ACPI S3 signal may work with suspend as well. Secondly, the storage is dynamically provisioned when suspend is requested and is separate from the instance boot disk. This in comparison to other clouds that require you to have sufficient disk space on the boot disk to save the instance stage, which is an Amazon limitation. Uh, so nice job. Google gave you this feature and it gave it to you a little bit better than some of the other cloud providers did. It's a little strange because, because um, an S3 signal is actually suspend to RAM, not suspend to disk. So maybe um, maybe it's a, a suspend to RAM and then they shut down the instance after copying the RAM to this, you know, this extra storage to to avoid having to store the RAM on um, on disk, it's yeah. interesting. So it's it's a yeah interesting way of going about it, which makes it very fast to restore and compatible with everything. It's awesome. 
it's really great. Yeah. Yeah. I have this use case for this today. I can turn off some servers without destroying them, which is always a plus, and save some money, and then boot them right back up, just like they were never turned off. It's always a nice feature. Especially if they're Windows. Yes, especially if they're Windows. And that's it for GCP. That's it. That's all I got for you guys. Sweet. So then Azure's here uh, shutting the front door on us once again with the Azure front door uh, service now going generally available. Uh, this is their modern cloud native CDN services. And this is really a combination of their previous uh, Azure Front Door Classic, Azure CDN, and the Azure Web App Firewalls offered to you in two packages, Azure Front Door Standard and Azure Front Door Premium. Uh, this service includes turnkey security and a simple pricing model built on top of Microsoft's massive scale private global network. Uh, there are several key capabilities that have been released into the general availability, including improved automation and simplified provisioning with DNS, auto-generated endpoint host names to prevent subdomain takeovers, Expanded private link support in all Azure regions. Web app firewall enhances the DRS 2.0 rule set and bot manager. Expanded rules enter with regular expressions and server variables. Enhanced analytics and logging capabilities and integration with Azure DNS, Key Vault, Azure Policy, and Azure Advisor. And a simplified and predictable cost model for Azure. I'd be curious to actually see the comparison. Probably should have done it before we recorded in cost because... Assuming performance is relatively similar, cost is what this always comes down to. Similar to CloudFront, you mean? Or yeah, similar Cloud, to... CloudFront, Akamai, Fastly. Cloud. Cloudflare, yeah, everybody. Yeah. I mean, I assume, I assume it's definitely going to be cheaper than Akamai because everything's cheaper than Akamai. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, it's, it's really a combination of CloudFront and Amazon WAF put together, which you can also do. You can enable... Yeah. WAF for you know for CloudFront, so you have to add those numbers up together. But I imagine they're competitive, and/or one beats the other one just slightly, uh, just enough to that Azure can use a competitive advantage for at least a couple of weeks before AWS announces a price cut. <laughs> In which case, everyone's just going to use the CDN and WAF that's uh, associated with the workload in the same platform. Yeah. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, if you have uh, employees in India and you are unhappy with the limited number of regions that are already in, in India, including Pune, Mumbai, and Chennai, uh, Microsoft has you your back with a brand new region that they're going to be opening in Hyderabad. Uh, which will be the fourth region, and it'll be called the South Central India region, and will leverage multiple availability zones for all your HA needs. Uh, the new region will offer the entire Microsoft portfolio for cloud, data, AI, productivity tools, and CRM with advanced data security for enterprises, startups, developers, education, and government institutions. And the part that I was most shocked about this is that they didn't weren't already in Hyderabad, because that's where I believe most of the Microsoft employees are. <laughs> so it was interesting to me they had never put a region there. Probably putting them... Maybe closer to customers than employees. Don't know. And then the last one is you can now manage port forwarding for backend pool with Azure Load Balancer. 
The Azure Load Balancer now supports the ability to manage port forwarding for virtual machine scale sets or a group of virtual servers in a backend pool with a single setup with minimum management overhead. Port forwarding allows you to connect to a specific virtual machine by using the Load Balancer front-end IP address and a port number. The Load Balancer, upon receiving the traffic on a certain front-end port, will forward traffic to the target virtual machine on a specific backend port. Uh, and while I think this is nice, uh, it does feel like an overhead nightmare of like trying to manage. Well, I need the 50th node, so it's going to be, you know, load balancer IP colon 5054. <laughs> like, how would you, like, how do you map all that? Like, that's like, that seems like kind of like a mess. And I, I get the idea of being able to maybe test something on specific nodes, which is hmm. why you'd want this capability. But again, it's, it's hard to, hard to manage. It just seems to me. Yeah, it's not something you could use DNS for at that point. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's for fleets of things. So it it doesn't really matter which node has which address if you're going to poll them all for a particular state, for example, or mm. send them all the same request or send them all something if if they're workers like that. But yeah, it's just a little little odd. It's uh, I don't know. It's, it seems like it could could lead to a bit of a security nightmare for people. Yeah, this is this is not a feature to be turned on lightly without. That's some thought and discussion with your security team, I think. It's, it's like UPnP for cloud. Yeah, <laughs> what could go wrong? totally. Yeah. UPnP. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would, you know, if anyone would come up with UPnP for cloud, it would be Microsoft who put that abomination on us to begin with. So it would make sense. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for new news this week. Like I said, a light week. Uh, we do have some lightning round topics uh, that Peter can run us through real quickly here. Sure. How about a GA announcement? On-demand capacity reservation with Azure Site Recovery safeguards VM failover. I, mean, I love a good DR strategy where I pay for the, all the capacity that I shouldn't have to pay for in the DR site in advance. It's great. Thanks. Thanks for that capability. Isn't on-command capacity reservation kind of an oxymoron? I mean, yeah. On-demand, yeah. <laughs> It's a reservation, so that when you need it, we'll have the capacity reserved for you, so then you can request it on demand. That's what they're telling you. But, mm. Yeah, it, the one thing it, if the if the reservation costs less than running it, you know, at full blast. But I, I've never seen a reservation that you didn't have to pay full price for. It's not like you can have a um, a cold standby and just pay, you know, two cents on the dollar for it until you need to use it. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Because I mean, they're reserving the capacity for your purpose, so they are going to charge you a premium price for it because they can't sell to somebody else. Um, so it, it is it's a weird market. I I know why they do it, and I understand the compliance reasons for it, but it just feels like such a legacy anti-cloud pattern. I just hear Seinfeld saying, you know how to take the reservation. You don't know how to hold <laughs> the reservation. Nice. <laughs> you you may, may actually win the lightning round for that. That's ah, pretty for funny. That, no, <laughs> I, I almost agree. Yeah. <laughs> Also, generally available as your Bastion native client support. So, uh, you know, Microsoft stole this whole concept of a Bastion has been like preaching the the glory of Bastion. So we've all been living in the Linux world for decades. But now they have the audacity to tell you there's a native client for Bastion. It's just a CLI. Come on, folks. All right. Well, we've got managed entitlements in AWS License Manager, which now supports license usage for AWS Marketplace licenses. Does it give me the license to punch Chris Rock in the face? That's a Whoa! question. <laughs> too soon. Too soon. Winner. <laughs> Not too soon. So perfect. 
I got nothing. I got nothing now. I can't. <laughs> Stunned. Stunned and shocked. <laughs> well, Amazon RDS free tier now includes db.t3.micro, AWS Graviton 2-based db.t4g.micro instances in all commercial regions. I would love to see someone try to run a SQL server and RDS on a dbt3 micro. That would be awesome. Awesomely bad. MS SQL? Yeah. 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 MS SQL on that? Yeah. That's going to be a fun day. It'll take about f- five to six hours to boot. And <laughs> then you might be able to get a connection to it. It's funny. This announcement came maybe a week and a half after I saw somebody tweet at AWS support saying, hey, why don't we have support for T3 um, instead of T2 in RDS? Miraculously, it appeared. So, T3 micro. It is pretty good, though. I mean, if you, SQL and Oracle aside, if you've got a super awesome tiny micro partitioning strategy for whatever your app is, how great is that if you just got all these little things and you you lose one and it doesn't matter, you lost like three customers and you get it back up and running and pretty much nobody notices? That'd be great. I mean, the the challenge I have with T is, is anywhere in production that no one understands that they're burstable and how burstable credits work. And having been on enough outages, troubleshooting issues to find out, oh, wait, this is a T instance? Oh, you're out of burstable credits. Like, I don't, I don't know that I want to play that game with my RDS database, especially considering a lot of the RDS compute is for Amazon to actually manage RDS, you know, things like replication of the data and all these things that would be there. So I don't know that burstable is the right play for RDS, but... You know, for test workloads or dev workloads, sure. My favorite is when the test suite doesn't exhaust the burst. Worked, <laughs> made it through the performance testing. I couldn't imagine what could have gone wrong. Yeah. yeah. Or it worked yeah, yesterday just fine. Today it's dog yeah. dog slow. I don't understand. Mm, yeah, okay. At least T3 has, has bursting enabled by default, whereas T2, you had to do that on explicitly, which was True. a bit of a chore. I didn't realize there was a T4 that's a Graviton-based uh, micro instance. I, didn't, I actually didn't realize that came out. That's actually pretty nice Yeah, for ARM. All right, Amazon RDS now supports IPv6 on RDS service APIs. <laughs> so you're, this is a weird you know, feature. I'm going to enable IPv6 to the API <laughs> so I can access it from another IPv6 service? Okay. All right. Sure. Whatever. I kind of wonder if this is kind of, if it's really heading into uh, not that this is hilarious lightning around joke or anything, but a lot, lot of IP6 announcements recently. Yeah, wondering if they're if they're sort of going to make a push towards IPv6 only VPCs. It, it would make sense. I mean, I, I imagine you know with Kubernetes and Lambda and attachments they're doing that you know IPv6 just simplifies their lives so much at Amazon to not have to worry about IPv4. I mean, and they've already bought up most of the IPv4 networks they could for a low price, you know, so now they're getting expensive. So the faster they get people to move to IPv6, the better it is for Amazon, I think, long-term. And it has its advantages too. Right, they can make it so easy to push people there. Just every, yeah, IPv6 only, 20% cheaper. Yep. Yeah. And I think there's some magic that goes into VPC networking because because of the restrictions around the private IP space you're allowed to use and the combinations of cider blocks you're allowed to use. There's obviously some optimization that's gone in to building the way VPC works in EC2. And I, I kind of wonder if they've, they've reached uh, some kind of limit. And now it's like, well, okay, now we, m- we need to move customers to IPv6 to enable more features or the next set of features or the next generation of features or whatever the case may be. But definitely seems like, uh, I mean, VPC is how old now? 10 years old? So, yeah. yeah. It's probably 
there's probably a good reason for them making this push. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna say, look, we're gonna fundamentally rewrite some of the most legacy parts of our cloud, knowing what we now know, things like IAM or VPC networking. Why would you write that on IPv4 today versus potentially right. focusing yeah. on IPv6 as the foundation for those things? Yep. Well, Amazon EC2 auto scaling instance lifecycle states are now available via the instance metadata service. Which is the best thing ever because now I don't have to run the dumb SSM agent to know that the instance is going to die. I can just query the metadata service where it should always have been to begin with. Well, seems like a good place. Yep. And Amazon Kendrick, excuse me, Amazon Kendra releases Slack connector to enable Slack messaging search. It's kind of cool. I had a joke, but now, I, you know, Peter, you're just so humble. Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but actually, I know I was, I'm, I'm more concerned this is going to add it to my Slack channels without me knowing about it, and then people are going to have records of what I said that they can search for. Yeah. That's what I'm more worried about. They'll be able to find what you said. They already have what you said. Yeah. Yeah, but they can't find it most of the time. So but you just can't find it. Exactly. And if it's over the 10,000 limit on the free Slack channel, then they now have no idea. It's gone. It's Gonzo yeah. after that. But now if Kendra is going to capture all this data and put it into their search database, and then it's going to, they're going to have history of all of my stuff after the 10,000 limit, uh, A, Slack should be angry because this is going to save people a bunch of money. But number two, I'm angry because now they have my data. Bastards. <laughs> That's it. That's our lightning round. Well, fantastic. Uh, who a winner this week? Or are we just going with Peter? Okay. I'm, I'm happy to take it. Or I will. I <laughs> If it's not me, it's 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 gonna be the slap. I, I think you should take it, Peter. Okay, I'll take it. I do. Thank you for the slap, though. Since we colluded on the uh, on the Chris Rock joke before Justin <laughs> got here. Yeah. Oh, oh, I see how it is. Okay, that's what happens when yeah. you're late, Jonathan. Yeah. Or you're Justin. Sorry. <laughs> nice. uh, Too many J's around here. Too many J's. I just mentioned off the cuff while we were chatting, waiting for you, that if somebody comes up. With a Chris Rock joke, I'll probably give that the winner. Got it. Got it. Nice. So it's my fault. All right. Well, there are things coming up. Uh, but first of all, Peter, you know, we, we wanted to see, um, do you have your flights booked to Houston for Reinforce? I do not. Should That's I? That's good because they moved it to Boston. Oh. <laughs> we talked about that last week. To where? Boston? To Boston. Back to Boston. Uh. So they, they, uh, they decided that they didn't want to be in Texas due to all of the recent uh, laws uh, that they are passing in Texas. And so they moved it back to Boston uh, June 28th to 29th. So the nice part is you won't be able to fry any eggs on your on your rental car roof in the parking lot. But, uh, you know, it'll be Boston in the summer, which is also very humid and sticky, too. Ooh. But just a different are way. Are you going? No, no, of course not. <laughs> I have to trade in my 10-gallon hat now. What, what do I have to wear to Boston? Bring some tea bags. Tea bag? A white. Well, you're you're British, so you need to get one of those white wigs and uh, you know. <laughs> That's right. Coat. The uh, the justice. Yeah, I was gonna do that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, things that are coming up sooner than reinforce uh, is the Azure Modernize and Migrate with Hybrid Cloud Flexibility Seminar is April 13th from 9 a.m. to 11 Pacific time, uh, and they've given us five reasons you should attend this, uh, and there are such amazing reasons such as. You can hear the best practices in real-life modernization and migration success, success stories from Azure customers and fast-track for Azure engineers, which I say, just give me a case study. Number two, join exclusive sessions on apps, data, and infrastructure modernization and migration scenarios. Uh, in the breakout sessions from experts like Jeff Holland, Jeff Wilsley, and Bob Ward on how to modernize your .NET and Java apps. Which that, you know, If you're looking for techniques and you're looking for stuff, that's probably a good session to go to. 
Uh, number three, discover hybrid cloud solutions to help you modernize and migrate at your own pace. Uh, which if your answer is to slow down your migration because you're doing hybrid, that's the wrong reason to slow down, in my opinion. Number four, get hands-on experience with deep dive demos, workshops, and cloud skills challenges. And number five, you can enroll in a chance to win Surface headphones, Surface earbuds, or a Bose SoundLink micro speaker. So there you go. If you register today, you can win one of those great prizes. Uh, all coming to you on April 13th. Do I have to pay for it? No, it's free. Just, it's Ooh. a free online session. So yeah, get some good expertise. Uh, but if you want to go on the Amazon side of the track, you can, of course, go to one of their summits. Uh, they're coming up hot and fast with Paris on April 12th. Uh, San Francisco, April 20th through 21st. Peter, you going to that? You're going to be at AWS Summit? Um, you know, I don't think I'm going to be in town for it, unfortunately. I'm not going either, so it's perfect. Thanks. No. Perfect. <laughs> but if anyone is going, I think we'll have probably, I bet we have three or four employees there. If you're going to have a booth, let us know. We'll send stickers and then people can No booths. No booths. No booths. No booths. No booths. All right, that's fine. Uh, and then if you're looking for Google Workspaces, uh, their summit is on May 4th. And then uh, there's all kinds of other things you can check out in the show notes. Uh, you know, IBM Think, if you, I think, is in May, uh, 19th to 13th. And then KubeCon EU, May 16th to 20th, is also coming right around the corner. So do check those out. And that is it, I think, for another fantastic week in the cloud, guys. Awesome. Wow. Shortest, shortest episode in a year, probably. Yeah. And our listeners are all rejoicing. Exactly. <laughs> and for many half an hour, Justin's going to sing. <laughs> no, no, just, ah. oh, no, I'm not. No, 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 no. That's not going to happen. <laughs> all right, guys. Have a good night. See you later. All right. Good night. And that is the Weekend Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.